Thank you. It is my delight to be back at Southwinds. Um, in the earlier service, I was introduced as the summer Mike Nolan. Uh, it's not summer, but I typically have been here over the last 20 years, many times in the summer and other times when he's been away for vacation or rest or travel as he's doing now. So thank you for inviting me back. And thank you for your longtime support of Gateway Seminary. Uh, you have been a faithful partner of our school for many years. You've given to us through the cooperative program of the Southern Baptist Convention. You have prayed for us, and you have sent us students, and you've hired our graduates. And beyond all those things, you've also allowed your pastor from time to time to teach for us. So thank you for the partnership that we've enjoyed over the years. <clears throat> Open your Bibles now to Romans chapter 10. Where in just a moment, I'll begin reading a passage of Scripture that is the foundation for today's message and is the passage from Romans that your pastor specifically asked me to preach about for you this morning. Romans chapter 10. The Bible was not written in a vacuum. Particularly the New Testament books, which were written originally as letters, were written in response to questions that were asked, either by an emissary who came from a church or a region and asked the writer to address certain issues, or in some cases, even by letter being received, asking for specific information. Now, most of the time, those messages from emissaries and those letters that were received have been lost. And so we're left with only the responses that became what we call the Bible, particularly the New Testament. This morning we come to a passage of Scripture that is definitely written in response to questions that had been raised. And I think from the text itself we can discern these might have been the two questions. First, how is it that the gospel can spread more uh, broadly and more rapidly? And second, how do we respond to so many people who do not receive the gospel? How can the gospel spread? And how do we respond to people who reject it? Let's see how we can answer those two questions and learn some insights from Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 14. The Bible begins with a series of questions in this text. How then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message of Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Yes, they did. Their voice has gone out to the whole earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses said, I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation. I'll make you angry by a nation that lacks understanding. And Isaiah says boldly, I was found by those who were not looking for me. 
I revealed myself to those who were not asking for me, but to Israel, he says, all day long. I have held out my hands to a disobedient and defiant people. This passage begins by teaching us that we will tell more people the gospel by sending more preachers. I thought you'd be more excited about that. More preachers. You're thinking, that's just what we need. Well, it actually is just what we need. The passage asks these four questions there in a rhetorical form with the answers seemingly coming in the questions themselves. These four leading questions underscore the vital role of preachers. How can they call on him? How can they believe without hearing? How can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? These questions underscore the importance of preaching and of preachers. But then after asking these questions, he then puts an exclamation point on it by quoting uh, this verse from Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful feet. Now, there are many aspects of the human body that are attractive. Eyes, mouth, your cute little nose. But not too many people think of feet when they're describing something beautiful about the human body. Let me tell you about your feet. They're not that attractive. In fact, they might be gnarly. Some days they're even nasty. Your feet have toes that go like this direction. And some of you have toes that are growing things on them and under the nails of them. You got calluses, warts, and other bumps. Some of you slipped your feet under the chairs right now because you're afraid I'm talking about you. In this context of feet being relatively unattractive, Isaiah wrote it, Paul quotes it, how beautiful are even the feet of those who bring good news. Underscoring again the value of preachers and preaching. Now let me give you three applications of this part of the message. First, and the first one is only for a small subset of you. In fact, if you're here and you're a guy between ages 12 and about 30, I want you to really pay attention right now. The rest of you, you can go online and find that app thing and give your Halloween candy right now. The first application of this for some of you is be a preacher. We need more people to step forward and say, I'll be a preacher. And while I'm not trying to exclude anyone this morning, I want to speak specifically to you young men here today. Some of you need to step forward and be preachers. You say, well, how would I know I'm supposed to do that? Well, if you've got a burning inside of you that wants to communicate the word of God more than anything else, you might be called to be a preacher. 
If you've got something inside of you that just cooks and percolates and, 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 and presses and motivates you to stand up and say, this is what God says, and you just want the whole world to hear that, you, you might be called to be a preacher. If there's not anything else in the world that seems as fulfilling as that to you, maybe God's calling you to be a preacher. It happened for me when I was an 18-year-old. I was looking at all the options of life. I thought about law school. I, 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 that, that sounded appealing. I, I thought about becoming a teacher. That sounded fulfilling. At one point in my life, uh, two businessmen made an offer that if I would go to work for them for a few years, they'd pay for all of my education. That was very appealing because I worked three jobs and put myself through college. Why didn't I go to law school or become a teacher or take those men uh, at their offer and go into business? Because I had something inside of me that was burning to preach. I had something inside of me that was compelling me to be a preacher. I wanted that more than anything else, to preach. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, he's talking about me, then you need to step forward. Come to your pastor and say, I think God wants me to be a preacher. And let him start shaping you and helping you to sort that out and discover how you can pursue that calling in your life. We need more preachers. And we especially need young men who will step forward and say, I'll take up the mantle of being a preacher. I've got news for you. Mike Nolan and I are not going to be here forever. I'll be 65 years old next week. Now, while I've still got a few sermons left, I'm more interested in finding the 25 and 35-year-olds right now who are going to take my place than I am preaching a lot more sermons. We need young men to step up and say, I'll be a preacher. Be a preacher. Now, I need everybody back now. Get off your phones and come on back. Second application. If you can't be a preacher, train a preacher. You say, well, what do you mean train? Well, if God is calling people to be preachers, they need to be trained. Like one African-American student said to me recently, when he came to seminary, he said, I've got the burning. Now I need the learning. <laughs> and I knew exactly what he meant. He said, I've got the burning, but I need now somebody to teach me how, how to study the Bible, how to understand theology, how to craft a sermon, how to take the text and make it sing. I need to understand how to learn principles of rhetoric and delivery and all that goes with preaching. And then I need practice and I need people to critique me along the way and help me to grow. That's the training part. Look, if you can't be a preacher, train a preacher. Let me tell you specifically how that played out for me. I did not grow up in a Christian family. I became a Christian when I was 13 as a result of the ministry of a church a lot like Southwinds. From 13 to 23, I stayed in that church. I went through the discipleship processes and ultimately became an intern and then ultimately an associate pastor while I was in college. Ten years of mentorship and training. During that 10-year time, my family never attended church one time together. I was the first professing open Christian in my uh, family or even in my extended family. When it came time for me to go to seminary, on the Sunday before we were going to leave and drive away for school, a couple in our church invited my wife over to their house for lunch. Now, this was not a wealthy couple. In fact, he was actually an associate pastor of our church with two sons who were about to go off to college. So they didn't have a lot of extra money, if you know what I mean. 
They had us over for lunch that last Sunday before we left. And after the meal was finished, he said, before you go, we've got something as a family that we want to say to you. He said, Jeff, we believe in you and we believe in your future. And our family is going to pay your seminary tuition. Send us the bill. And that family paid for me to go to seminary. That moved me so deeply. The following night on Monday, before we left the next day, our extended family had to get together to send us off and say goodbye to us. And I wanted to give a witness to my family of Christian love and the devotion this church had shown to me. And so I told them the story I just told you. My uncle was there. I've never seen my uncle darken the door of a church in his entire life. But that night he said, you've got a family that's going to pay your way through seminary? And then he said, Jeff, I believe in you too. I want to help you become a preacher. Send me the book bill. I'll pay all your books. So I went to seminary because two families, one a strong Christian family, one, not so much, but two families said, we believe in training a preacher. And they stepped up and paid for me to go to school. Look, some of you in this church need to be thinking that same way. You say, well, I, I don't think I'm supposed to be a preacher, but I value preachers in preaching. And I know a young person that's trying to get through school that needs help because they're going to turn into someone who's going to make a difference someday. I'm going to get behind them and I'm going to make it possible for them to be trained. But it goes on from there. So I went through seminary, went off to become a pastor of a church, not a large church. When I got there the first Sunday, there were about 100 people. I started pastoring that church and went on there for a few years. It was a working man's church, if you know what I mean. I had three or four college graduates in the whole congregation. Most of the men in that church uh, worked union jobs. They worked in plants or in uh, large companies that uh, made things. Uh, these were hardworking guys. One day I went to my deacon's meeting and I said, hey, listen, fellas, I, I, I want to tell you something I think God wants me to do. I, I think I need to go get a doctorate from a seminary. I think I need to do that to prepare myself for the future and just get more training and be ready to go with whatever God has for me. But I don't know why, but I, I, all the reasons, but I feel like I need to get a doctoral degree. And these fellows all said, okay. And they listened to my plan. I said, look, I'm going to need some time off. I'll take that time unpaid. I'm not asking you for anything special, uh, just for the time. But I really feel like I need to do this. And they listened to my proposal and they said, okay. You go on home, preacher, and we're going to talk this over and pray about it, and we'll send somebody to tell you tomorrow what we're going to do. So the next afternoon, Monday afternoon, the deacon chairman got off work and came by my office and said, well, pastor, we, we talked about it, and here's what we decided. Number one, we definitely think you need to do this. We, we see that it's a need, and it's an opportunity, and we're behind you. So number one, yes, you need to do it. Number two, no unpaid time off. In fact, you don't even use your vacation for this. Your vacation's for your family. We're going to ask the church to give you three months paid leave in the next 18 months so you can go to the campus and do the work you need to do to get the degree. I said, man, that's super generous. Thank you so much. And then he said, oh, well, there's one more thing. These working class deacons, only one college graduate in the whole group, he said, one more thing, pastor, we believe in you. We believe in your future. The deacon's going to pay for your doctorate. Send us the bill. I stand here before you today with three earned degrees. The first one, I worked three jobs to earn. The second one, a family and a, or two families paid for. And the third one, a Baptist church and their deacons paid for. 
Why? Because they believe in preachers and they believe in preaching. And they said, if I'm not going to be a preacher, what? I'm going to train a preacher. I'm going to find a person that I really believe is going to make a difference and I'm going to put my money behind them and I'm going to get them the training they need to help them be as effective as possible. If you can't be a preacher, train a preacher. And then the last thing, if you can't be a preacher or train a preacher, then send a preacher. That's what it says right here. How can they hear unless someone is sent? How do you send a preacher? You find a missionary or a church planter who's going somewhere with the gospel, preferably where the gospel's never been heard before, and you put the prayer and encouragement and money behind that person to go preach the gospel somewhere. Listen, the first part of this message, the first part of this text says, we will tell more people the gospel by sending more preachers. And how do we do that? First, we've got to have people that'll be preachers. Second, we've got to train those people who are going to be preachers. And third, we've got to send those people to preach wherever we can that the gospel has not been heard. Southwinds Church, this is your responsibility. You've got to either be a preacher, train a preacher, or send a preacher. That's what this text says to us this morning. Well, the second big idea in the text is this. We must tell people about the gospel even knowing some people will reject it. Now look what happens here. The emphasis on this text is on telling people the gospel, but it also clearly says some will reject. Look what it says in verse 17. So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. So the gospel must be communicated. It must be shared. It must be told to other people so they can hear it. The gospel faith, it says, comes from what is heard, and what is heard is the message about the gospel. But the previous verse tells us, verse 16, but not all obey the gospel. When we send preachers and they communicate the gospel and it's all about Jesus Christ, some are not going to respond favorably. Verse 16, ask this question from Isaiah's time. Lord, who has believed our message? In the context, he's asking that question because people are not believing the message. He's asking this question with exasperation. Lord, who has believed when meaning no one is believing? So what does this mean for you this morning? Well, first it means this, the gospel must be communicated in order to be effective. Now, there is an insidious lie that some Christians believe. It's insidious because it sounds so good, we think it's true, and in the thinking of it's, uh, that it's true, we undermine a very important truth. The lie is this. You can live the gospel and people around you will become Christians. Say, so I'll just live the gospel. I don't really need to speak the gospel. I'll just live the gospel. Well, that sounds good, but it's just false. This verse says, look at it again, faith comes from what is heard, not what is seen. You say, but wait a minute. Jesus said they will know we are Christians by our love. Yes, he did say that. Let's take him at his word. Jesus said, people will look at you as you love other Christians and they will say, wow, those are true Christians. 
Jesus did not say that people will look at you as you love other Christians and say, wow, I now understand the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the need for my repentance from sin and to turn my life over to him. That message is not communicated by what people see. It's only communicated by what people hear. Now, there is a place for living your life in such a way that your words have weightiness, that your words are not disqualified by the way you're living. But let's be clear this morning. There is no biblical injunction to live the gospel in a sense that people will see it and automatically become Christians. Spontaneous combustion does not occur. People have to hear the gospel in order to respond to the gospel. So we see here a responsibility we have to communicate the gospel. And when we communicate the gospel, what is it about? The end of verse 17. It's about Jesus Christ. What is heard comes through what? The message about Christ. You know, the, the church today, particularly the American church, is caught up on so many other, quote, gospels. We're trying to convince people to support a certain political movement. We're trying to convince people to support certain social justice issues. We're trying to commit, convince people to stand up for certain moral standards. We're trying to convince people to take on our particular theological bent. We're trying to do all these different things and saying, if we can just win on these issues, we will have accomplished our mission. And re the reality is, if we keep fighting over all of these issues, we're going to keep missing the central issue, which is the message of the gospel. Our message is not politics or social justice or morality or theology. Our message is Jesus Christ. That's our message. This passage says faith comes by hearing, by hearing people talk about someone, and that someone is Jesus Christ. He is the central character and the key person we should be communicating to everyone. And it's his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. That's the gospel. And that's what we have to be sharing with people. But yet, even when we do that, this passage is oh so clear. Some people will reject the gospel. It says in verse 16, not all obey. This idea that some people are going to reject the gospel needs to settle in our souls because once it does, it has several effects on us. First of all, it will remove your anger toward people who do not follow Jesus. You already know some are going to reject, so why are you so angry about it when they do? It'll also give you greater security as a Christian because your faith will not be dependent on other people validating it because you'll recognize other people are going to reject from time to time, and I'll keep believing what I believe. It's also going to make you a less stressed witness of the gospel. You're no longer going to be trying to convert people. You're just going to be sharing the gospel and letting God work in their hearts as he will, recognizing some are going to receive and some are going to reject. You know, I've seen this played out in so many ways over my years of ministry, but never more vividly than something that happened early on in my pastoral work. When I first became a pastor, I was very evangelistic, outreach-oriented, and I not only did that myself, but I trained people in the church to do it with me. And back then we were using a particular training program that was very thorough. It took about three months to complete and you had to memorize a number of scripture passages and transition statements and, and illustrations and answers to common questions. It was quite a formidable project. I had a young man named Jack who I thought had remarkable potential in this area and he did. 
he learned the presentation perfectly. But it really wasn't supposed to be a presentation. It was supposed to be something that you learned thoroughly and then used as a backdrop when you had a dialogue with someone about the gospel. Are you tracking with me this morning? Well, we had two sisters come and visit our church. These were two young women in their mid-20s, both out away from home on their own, living, sharing an apartment together, working in the community. And a friend invited them to our church and they came. They had a good experience. They may have even returned more than once. I don't remember exactly, but we quickly established enough of a relationship that I asked if they'd like to have a sit-down conversation about their relationship with God, and they said they'd like that. So on a weeknight, my friend Jack and I went to their house, sat down with them, made some small talk, and then I said, you've been visiting our church, and I asked if I could come and talk with you tonight about your relationship with God. Are you open to that conversation? Oh, yes. Both of them said, oh, yes, yes, we'd like to have that. We've really enjoyed your church. We've learned so much already. We'd like to hear what you have to say. I said, well, this is my friend Jack, and I've been teaching him how to share the gospel with people. And so tonight, if you don't mind, tonight, I'd like for him to take the lead in the conversation, and I'll help him out as needed, but let's let him take the lead. Oh, that'd be fine. That'd be fine. I said, Jack, why don't you share the gospel? Well, he did. He repeated the entire thing word for word. It turned into like a 20-minute sermon. And I'm sitting there thinking, we're dying here. (laughs) Take a breath, buddy. Let him ask a question. Have a little conversation. Let me get in and soften the blow. But no, he's just delivering it. And every time I try to interrupt, he gives me the glare and he just keeps talking. He goes for about 20 minutes, hardly takes a breath. Then he got to the end and said, does what I've been saying make sense to you? And these two sisters looked at each other and then they looked at us and, they, and both of them nodding their heads said, yes, that makes perfect sense. And then one of them said, that's the clearest thing I've ever heard. How did you learn to do that? And I thought to myself, This is not how I saw this playing out. And then Jack said the follow-up question. Well, if this makes sense to you, then I'd like to ask you, would you like to pray with me tonight and commit your life to Jesus Christ? And when he asked that question, one of the sisters said, yes, I want to do that. I want to do that right now. And the other one said, no, I don't think I'm interested. It was the clearest example of this passage of Scripture I've ever encountered. Two people, same, a similar age, similar background, heard the exact same presentation, both agreed it was perfectly clear, and one said, I'm ready to commit, and the other one said, not for me. The sister who gave her life to Jesus Christ that night, very soon afterwards came to our church for baptism, made a public profession of her faith, was baptized. Her sister came and observed all of that as well. But within a very short time, the one sister was an active part of our church and the other one stopped attending. The Bible says we are responsible to communicate the gospel so that people hear it. And then when they hear it, they'll understand the message about Jesus Christ. And then when that happens, some are going to say, that's what I've been looking for all my life. And some are going to say, not for me. Another big idea in this text is that when we communicate the gospel, we must communicate the gospel clearly 
so that rejectors are without excuse. So that rejectors are without excuse. Verse 18, there's a series of questions. But I asked, did they not hear? And the answer, yes, they did. And then verse 19, the second question, did Israel not understand? And then there's this answer that's a quote from the Old Testament, Moses replying. And his reply basically says, yes, they did understand. No, they were not responsive and they were judged because of their rejection. And then Isaiah even weighs in and he says, yes, they rejected, they understood. And he said, I revealed myself then to those who were not looking for me, meaning now God opens the door for the Gentiles, not just the Israelites to follow him. These questions and frankly, these somewhat opaque answers are trying to communicate this reality. Yes, they heard. And yes, you fulfilled your responsibility. And when you did, they were without excuse. Look, you and I have a responsibility and an urgency to make sure people hear the gospel. So that if they do reject the gospel, they are without excuse. They can't say, well, I never heard. You and I have a responsibility to communicate the gospel. And to have such an urgency about it that people who've not heard it will hear it. Even though we know some will reject it, when we are sure they have heard the gospel, we are without further obligation and they are without excuse. You know, our problem generally in churches like yours is not that you disagree with anything I've said this morning. It's that you have a hard time feeling any urgency about it. You've got a job to go to tomorrow. You've got children to care for. You've got grass to mow and clothes to wash and life to live. It's hard in the context of all of that to maintain this urgency about people who've not yet heard the gospel. Wanting them to hear the gospel so that even if they do reject, they would be without excuse. Right now they have excuse and their excuse is, I've never heard. Urgency. Sometimes it's easy to forget people in the world, in this world we're living in have never heard the gospel. Sometimes it's hard to, rem to, re to realize that there are people in our world who've never even heard the name of Jesus. A few years ago, a support staff person at Gateway wrote a book based on her travel experiences in Eastern Europe as a volunteer missionary. She made several trips there over the years, but one particular story actually created the title for her book and has stuck with me now for more than a decade since I've read it. She tells the story of going into Eastern Europe, a former communist country, 
going into a village where no one there had heard the gospel. They shared the gospel, told people about Jesus. For the first time, many of these people heard that name and understood the gospel. And within just a very short period of time, people started coming to faith in Jesus. My friend befriended one of the women who had become a Christian. And in that conversation, it unfolded like this. The woman said, when did you become a Christian? And my friend said, 30 years ago as a young woman. And the Eastern European woman said, you've had the gospel for 30 years? My friend said, yes. And you've just now come here to us? And my friend said, yes. And then the woman in broken English asked this three-word question, which has haunted me for a decade. She said, why wait you? You've had the gospel for 30 years and you're just now getting here? Why wait you? That question grips me with an urgency. People in our world have never heard the gospel or at least enough of it to understand it and some people have not yet even heard the name of Jesus. And we sit here saturated in gospel. While many in our world ask that question, why wait you? Why wait you? You say, oh, there, there just can't be that many people who've never heard the name of Jesus. Yes, there are. A few years ago, our seminary sent out its summer teams, which we do every year. But this particular team was sent to Nepal in cooperation with our mission board. And they were given this simple assignment, pair off into twos, threes, and hike these trails to find these villages in the mountains. And when you get there, just ask a simple question when you walk into the village. You'll draw a crowd. You don't need to worry about that. Just ask the question, has anyone here ever heard of a man named Jesus? One team told me that they trekked for a day. They got to a village. They asked the question, yes, we have heard of Jesus. In fact, there's a few followers of his in our village, and they met a few Christians in the middle of nowhere in Nepal. The next day, they hiked up into the next, toward the next village, found that place. Has anyone here know, ever heard the name of Jesus? Yes, there's a few people here that actually worship him or talk to him. Okay, let me meet them. But the third day, hiking even farther into the mountains, they reached a village where they walked in and said, has anyone here ever heard of a man named Jesus? And the students came back and told me later, Dr. Orge, you can't imagine what it felt like to stand in the midst of a couple of hundred people who'd never seen anyone like us walk in out of the mountains and ask, has anyone here ever heard of a man named Jesus and have them say no and then say those next powerful words? Well, we've come 
to tell you about him. And they settled down in that village and spent that next week preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and saw the first person come to faith in Jesus that week. The first person in that village who'd ever become a Christian because somebody went and told them the gospel. Listen, Southwinds, that's what this passage is about. It's about sending preachers and being people who share the gospel, knowing some will reject to be sure, but also knowing some will receive the gospel and making sure that everyone in our world is without excuse. They can't someday say, I never heard because we've answered the question, why wait you? And we're saying, we're not waiting any longer. Let's get more serious about getting the gospel to people who've never heard it and mostly who've never even heard the name of Jesus. And you say, well, but how long do we have to keep doing this? <laughs> well, that's where the text ends. We must keep offering the gospel perpetually and consistently. Notice the last verse. But in spite of all of this rejection and all of this difficulty, but to Israel he says, all day long, all day long, meaning perpetually and habitually and consistently all day long. I'm gonna keep giving you the gospel. And he says, all day long, I have held out my hands. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? A drowning person, what do you do? You reach out your hand to help them. You're walking across the parking lot this morning and an older person is trying to get into the service and they stumble a bit. What do you do? You reach out your hands to catch them. This picture, all day long, here's this picture. God says, I've held out my hands. To whom? Last phrase, to a disobedient and defiant people. God said, this is how we treat the disobedient and defiant. The people who stand up and shake their fist and say, I'll never believe in God. I stand against everything he stands for. Basically, Bay Area every normal day. What's our response? Disgust, anger, disdain. No. Our response is all day long, we just keep our hands out and say, I have the gospel for you, the gospel for you, the gospel for you. Doesn't matter what you say, what you do, how you act, the way you treat me, or the way you demean God, I have something for you. It's the gospel. And I'm going to keep doing it all day long. And guess what? I'll be back tomorrow. And I'll be back the next day. And I'll be back the next day. Because I am not given the privilege of being uh, judgmental or unloving or disdainful toward you. No, I have a responsibility to all day long, just keep my hands open and extended to say, here is the gospel. So this passage answers these questions for us. How's the gospel spread more broadly and more rapidly? By preachers and by the rest of us talking about the gospel and keeping our focus on Jesus Christ. When we do that, what's going to happen? Some are going to believe. 
Look around this room. You see evidence of that. But some are also going to reject. And our response to them is to keep sharing so that they might be without excuse and to make sure that everyone in the world hears the gospel so they might be without excuse. And when there is rejection and difficulty, even to the point that we would describe people as the Bible does as being defiant and disobedient, what do we do? We show up again the next day with the gospel. And we keep doing that day after day after day to fulfill the responsibility we have to share this good news with everyone. Let's bow our heads together this morning. With our heads bowed now, let's go back to the beginning of the message just for a moment. If you're here today and you would say, I want to be a preacher. I believe God is calling me. He's put a burning in me. I can't really explain it, but I know it's there. Would you just pray right now and say, God, make me a preacher. Do whatever you have to do in my life to get me to the point where I can be a preacher of your word. And if you're making that prayer and that commitment as soon as possible, go to one of your pastors or to someone you respect and say, I've made a commitment today to be a preacher. Help me to know what to do next. And they'll guide you along the way. If you're here today and you're motivated to train a preacher or to send a preacher, would you also pray and say, Lord, I need to get more serious about this. I need to spend my time and my energy and my money helping preachers. And then perhaps God is speaking to you about your friends. You say, well, I've shared the gospel with my brother-in-law or my cousin, my work associate, the guy I went to high school with. Lord, I've shared the gospel with my grandchildren and they've all rejected so what do I do? Well, you show up again tomorrow and share it again. Would you ask God today for stamina to be a perpetual and consistent witness of the gospel? And would you ask God to deliver you from anger and resentment and bitterness toward people who reject the gospel? Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you working in our lives today out of Southwinds Church call out some preachers within Southwinds Church give deeper motivation for sharing the gospel and a greater urgency about what we're doing and Father for all of us who are trying to talk with other people about you the rejection gets difficult some days Give us the stamina we need, the spiritual strength to keep our hands extended with the gospel to defiant and disobedient people who reject everything you stand for and we believe in. Give us that, we pray, as we try to serve you in this day. And we ask you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen.